Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltthology. Meltthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m., we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Hello, and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. We are recording live here at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. There's always something going on here, so if you hear any kind of crazy noise, blame it on the nerdist. So again, I'm going to be joined today by our in-house producer and audio engineer, Mason Booker. Hello, hey. Mason. Hey, thanks for having me back. Oh, absolutely, man. It's a blast. Yeah. So uh, we left off with our last podcast on comic books as fine art, and I wanted to segue that into the effect of graffiti art on comics and on fine art in general and how all these things seem to be related. And, and I'm going to give a little bit of background on this. I remember seeing the first spray can art books in the late 70s and early 80s. As a kid growing up in the North Shore of Boston, we had our share of subways and public buses and the kind of typical of that era, late 70s, graffiti was mainly some aerosol paint saying maybe a couple of curse words or somebody's hard to read name on a rock or on a stop sign. Uh, years later, when I came to California, you'd see the Chaka signs that would make their, their way up the um, <laughs> up the vine from uh, San Diego all the way to Washington, as I believe. But uh, when I was a kid growing up in um, north of Boston and Lynn and Salem areas, there was a big push towards a culture that kind of encompassed spray can art, graffiti as a form of frustration, and the rise of hip-hop, which was at that point still being labeled rap music and coming out of uh, New York and really specifically out of, you know, Brooklyn and the Bronx and then even New Jersey. Sugar Hill Records, who uh, and Sugar Hill Gang being credited as having the first rap hit, Sugar Hill Records was in New Jersey. Um, most people like to credit the Bronx as being the birthplace of rap music. Um, there's an argument about the relevancy of whether or not it didn't actually start in Queens, go to, go to the Bronx, and then come back to Brooklyn. But um, I'll leave that for somebody else's beef. <laughs> I, this is a good point for me to come in. Yeah, we actually talk. Uh, there's another podcast that we do that I help produce called uh, On On Some Hip Hop Stuff. Oh, rocking! And um, and that's that's exactly what they talk about. They talk about uh, hip hop culture and the graffiti and how it relates to comics and anime and stuff. And it's very fascinating. Oh wow, that's great. Maybe I'm creating something redundant then in this conversation. No, no, no. This is this is a, a different view on on the same topic. So it's it's, it's interesting. Oh, cool. I'll, I'll, and 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 why I mention these things is that you know that concurrently with the rise of hip hop and and the rise of rap music, you know, a lot of people will credit the Bronx riots. Yeah, I gotta say that. Um, uh, I'm just going to come in real quick. Uh, I grew up on the East Coast, mm -hmm. and I grew up uh, mostly around D.C., Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. And so the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area was not a lot of, gra not, not a lot of graffiti other than 
political slogans, uh, racist stuff, mm -hmm. just hate hate graffiti, if you will. Yeah. And it really wasn't until yeah, hip hop, like '90s, that I started for the first time seeing I, I, art, if you will, like yeah. like real graphic interpretation of of whatever tagging, and that. I, I first saw it, uh, I would go to New York to visit members of my family, and I, I would see it in New York, in the New York subway and stuff, of course, and then and then I slowly saw it in, in other parts of the East Coast, but it, would, it took a very long time. But it definitely linked almost directly with rap, hip-hop. And that upcoming. Yeah. But see, the, the funny thing is that the first modern examples of the type of urban blight graffiti that I think we're talking about and that evolved into kind of a, a real art form, which was then very connected with, with hip-hop, starts in the late 60s and early 70s, but really like 1972 in Providence. Providence, Rhode Island. The Providence, trains. Rhode Island, near upstate New York? Uh, well, uh, well, you or, know, a little or, bit further east. Yeah, but, sorry, uh, sorry. I'm, you I'm, Connecticut. I'm a hor horrible geography <laughs> person, but yeah, that's crazy. Connecticut's next to the Hamptons, and then um, Rhode Island's next to that. The Hamptons. Yeah. And then, I mean, you've got that little sound that goes all the way into the um, the north side of Long Island. So you can you can take your boats and even from Staten Island over to uh, Connecticut or, or Rhode Island. But the trains that ran on the line between Providence and then up into Canada and then over into New York and then down were the first um, really heavily graffitied, logoed cars. They were the first, when I said that I first saw graffiti in New York, that's where I saw it. I saw it on the trains yeah. in the subway station and stuff. And they would pull in and just look um, crazy, like crazy chameleon covered because so much graffiti all over them. But it was fascinating. When it hit the subway cars, which was the era after that, by oh. the time you hit like, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Fort Apache, the Bronx with, um, with Paul Newman, I mean, that really shows the nadir of just how bad it was in the Bronx in the 1970s that, you know, it was like Beirut bombed out, like completely just destroyed environment. Wow. No, I, I had no idea. Yeah. And this is before the onset of, you know, crack. I mean, and it's before like, you know, you talk about DC and you know what heroin did to the city of, of Baltimore. Yeah. After the Vietnam war, when heroin came back in a huge way and it got really nasty in the 1980s in Baltimore to the point that I believe now 20% of the population of Baltimore is addicted to heroin or has been addicted to heroin. I, well, I lived in Baltimore for a few years. I haven't heard that, but, uh, but I mean, I, I won't lie that the it's it's a rough, there are rough parts of town. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to go on the Edgar Allan Poe house tour uh, at night. But um, No, I don't think that would be a, a wise decision. <laughs> yes. So the um, those trains, like the freight trains that were going back and forth, then caught on with people in New York City who started painting up bridges and um, areas that you could only see when the trains passed by. So that little areas of track that were outside but in areas where no one would really go because it wasn't a good view. You'd be like this blank wall that was maybe 12 feet away from your train. They started hitting those up and then it went to the trains because they realized, hey, why, why show this to only people who take this train across this one area? where we can cover more space by covering a train that's going to travel the entire city. And then some cars would actually get moved to different lines. And then it became like a real graffiti battle. But it got really, really bad in the era right around the Bronx riots. Um, you know, that's the, uh, the Yankees won the world. Well, the Yankees were really good throughout the, the late 70s. The, the, um, the Yankees won that year. 
Um, and the, there was a bunch of riots that summer and a bunch of stereo shops got robbed and a lot of people stole turntables and tape to tape decks. And that was the birth of hip hop. And so during the riots, they would go loot, loot. The... They looted all these electronic stores. That's fascinating. Yeah. I'm amazed that that didn't happen in Los Angeles during the LA riots, because I remember living here when Silo over on Sunset and Highland was on the news and getting robbed. And uh, we lived four blocks from there. I mean, our building was on fire on Hollywood Boulevard. That's crazy because I live right near there. Yeah, I lived right. Gaston and I lived in the building at the corner of Hollywood and Hudson. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is now Hollywood Trader, I guess. Right, sure. And there's like this kind of amazing club in the back called like NoHo or something. It's um, like <laughs> okay. a... A North Hollywood themed like CD hotel type bar. It's it's fat. It's amazing. Sure, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, it was uh, amazing. I'm not um, I'm not cool enough to to go there yet, <laughs> but I'm, I'm working on it. You will get you there. Yeah, yeah. So the um, you know the this this whole like amalgamation, if you will, this cornucopia of different elements from the same socioeconomic background create a cultural look. And so then there's the the loose clothing that is breakdancing because that's like the the breakbeat stuff that everybody's dancing to. That becomes so associated. And then the boom boxes become very associated with that time. And I mean, remember people with those Kanyon 100 boom boxes, these 100 watt boom boxes. Oh and, yeah, and the, I mean, they were I, like eight hundred dollars back then. I remember the uh, the guys. You know, they'd have it up on the on the, the shoulder, shoulder, and the bigger your boom box, you know, that was that was a direct status yeah. symbol of how how much street cred and respect you got. Yep. Yeah. So here's here's the big boxes. You got the Kanyon 100, C100. You got the Sharps um, 777. That's what I, I saw. The Sharps. Yeah. Oh, so so beautiful. There's also the um, Sharp HK 9000, which is one Fab Five Freddy had. I've, I have one of those. It's gigantic. Oh, that's amazing. I can't fit my arm around it on my shoulder. Oh. I got to hold it like down low. Yeah, that's I'm a little the thing. Guy. Like these guys that were carrying it would be ripped, and yeah. then they they drop it on the ground, and then that was the sign that like you'd battle. Yeah. It, it was like you. Oh, know, uh, we're gonna break dance now. And Someone bring it. a sheet of linoleum yeah. out to the car or, or cardboard. But yep. yeah, yeah. And then it was on. That's yep. it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you had the um oh the other really great ones. There was the um oh this J V C M ninety. Oh, so beautiful. That's on the cover of LL Cool J's radio. Yeah. Um the Fat Boys had that uh, M70. There's the one that uh, uh Radio Rahim and uh Spike Lee's do that. That's right a thing. Jumbotron. That's the yeah, um the Helix yeah. Wheelie. Yeah, 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 yeah. That thing had wheels. <laughs> That that's, that's, that's the beast. That's that's the biggest boombox. That's the biggest one. I I'm impressed. Yeah, those those are monsters. Actually, I, I'm actually curating a show called um, Boombox Creators in December. No way, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's Let me know when that is. I'll totally check that First out. First Friday of Friday, December 2015 at Luz de Jesus, 4633 Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, for everybody else out there, everybody, everybody go check it out. Yes, it's www dot l a l u z d e jesus dot com. You gotta, you gotta have a a, a dance off in there in, well, the, I, in the gallery. I think we're gonna have a, um, a pretty amazing performance by uh, some guys and uh, Miles uh, Lightwood, who's um, co curator of the show and really behind all this. We've got original boombox designs by this dude that worked at GE. What? Including fantasy boxes that like never got made, like production design. It's like a Sid Mead type thing. Oh my god, that's awesome! Oh, they're beasts. There's going to be some portfolios of like his weird Walkman designs and then like the boom boxes and the mono boxes. But there's going to be uh, pieces inspired by, you know, boom box culture. And there's going to be 
uh, Sean Stepanoff, who does these great like um, modern takes on the African haircut signs, doing this big NWA piece. It's wow, gonna be amazing. This is crazy. Yeah, man. but this like all ties into that. Yeah, and the, um, so graffiti as a movement really starts to become relevant. Um, and in the last ten years is when graffiti art by certain people started to become important. Now in 1998, I made my first trip to um, to England. And I was staying in Leicester Square, and it was an amazing experience, actually, just being around in Leicester Square and walking out to Soho. But a buddy of mine had an apartment on, in Soho, and there was the train line went right by there. And I saw at a construction site this kind of wheat-pasted uh, design on the wall. Now, I'd, I'd seen Shepard Ferry stuff. What is wheat-pasted? Wheat, wheat-pasted is like... You take this really thin paper that's basically newsprint, and it has a printed image on it. I mean, it's really inexpensive, so you can print like hundreds of sheets for very little, and you can make stuff big. And you either, if you have a very big piece, you'll print a portion of it on four different posters, and then you'll take this wheat paste that you'll brush onto the back of the paper, and then stick it in a place in public. Got it. It's so like all it, the old Obey stuff that was in LA was all wheat pasted up. Yeah, when they, I, I would see. Um, Flyer crews in New York running around and, and slapping it on the back and slamming it on the on the all wood. those buildings where it yeah. said post no bills right and yeah then, and then skedaddling and okay. they do it they post the bill so um, at this construction site there was this great image of two cops kissing and it reminded me of some of the graffiti from the Watchmen I thought it was really great so I had my friend help me jimmy this thing off of the wall on the because it was like this oh, temporary wow. wood so of course it was. Never uh, authenticated, but it was a Banksy. But I had no idea who Banksy oh, was wow. back in 1998. Sure, right. And it stayed in my friend's apartment, I think, until he got evicted. I have no idea what happened to it. <laughs> That's unfortunate. I mean, you could say that it's worth a lot of money right now, but I mean, you'd still have to kick probably $30,000 to Banksy to get it authenticated, and he's not doing that anymore. But like that was sort of like, it was the watchman mm-hmm. that really made me respect graffiti as a culturally significant movement. Like I knew that, a lot of the stuff that was happening that was cool looking and we would copy, we'd do our own tags, you know, back in, in Lynn, like I did a thing called orbit and it was like this spaceship with this goofy lettering. Um, I had other friends that did other things. There's other, there's the panic tags and things like that. Um, in Chicago, this guy named night moose is more of a tagger really than, um, uh, than, a a writer. Yeah. There's a, a very famous tagger, uh, coming out of DC, the cool disco Dan, Disco Dan, and he he had a documentary made about him. Yeah, uh, it, it was. But I when I was in high school, he he got every uh, subway car. Yeah, and and bus in the DC metro system. It was that was how you got up. That's how you got over. And I, I mean, mean it's crazy. You know, it's the difference between that original wave of graffiti and the, and the original wave of early seventies, late sixties graffiti was very similar to the graffiti that had started to appear during World War Two. In occupied Germany, and there was a uh, the werewolves were like these renegade Nazis that had gone underground, and they would paint werewolves on the trains and stuff. In, wow! In so Bavaria. they were Nazis who were against the Nazi regime. No. Oh, because that would have been fascinating. They were like these Eastern European, like um, they were in Hungary, and they were in the Czech Republic, and there was some Vichy French people who had been like sympathetic to Germany during the war, who were still fighting as the occupying forces of the allies were taking over after um, Germany capitulated. And they were kind of still active in a weird way. And they paint werewolves on the walls. 
while that was happening, there were other people that were doing like the Kilroy was here tag became big during right. World War II with the nose right. hanging over the sign. Yeah. Um, and it was sort of like political stuff. And then you saw a continuation of that throughout the occupation of the by the of the Soviets by the Soviets of the Eastern Bloc nations of Hungary. And you have the big Naj revolution. There's a monument to the man named Naj who stood up against the Russians and he was executed. Um, and all throughout that in Romania, you know, during the Kokeshi regime and stuff, that there was a lot of graffiti by freedom fighters. That's what I'm familiar with. The, yeah. The freedom fighters, when you're being oppressed, graffiti seems to be a, a tremendous way to anonymously get out messages. And that's what it kind of became. But what's odd is that the most photographed of that stuff from the era a lot of which didn't make it overseas, except for the Kilroy stuff, was of this kind of villainous <laughs> graffiti. And then it quickly became... Oh, the werewolf. Yeah, it gotcha. quickly became co-opted by the good... Uh, you know, the good guys had been doing it. Other good guys started doing it again against the Soviets. Now... Mm, interesting. That kind of becomes apparent in New York City, also in the 1950s, where people start writing on traffic signs and they start writing on buildings and it became like it went from crayon to chalk chalk which would wash away then it starts to become spray paint um and a lot of it was racial a lot of it was racial yeah that's what i when i was growing up uh, like i said before it was either political stuff yeah. or or race and in the south of course it was a ton of it oh yeah um and so it be it then it moves from kind of like being this this shorthand of of prejudice into hey man this is our plight type of stuff yeah and, uh, when it oh, this is going briefly back to what you were talking about when they would jump into areas that were off limits or or otherwise hard to get to uh, and i would be on the subway riding by and i'd i'd see these things and they were clearly experiments in artistic expression or mm -hmm. or different messages that they were trying to get out but i would often wonder like how do they even get in here yeah. like i have no like there were bridges that were, you know, at least a couple hundred feet high and they'd, they'd have messages on them and I would just be like, I don't even know how you'd get up there, man. Yep. I have no idea. I mean, when someone tagged the building here in, uh, on Vine, oh, like, yeah. seven stories of the building or something oh, crazy. Yeah, like how do you, what? You know, and then he shows his friends and like, dude, you got the G wrong. You got to go back. And and <laughs> and like, oh, you know, I think you got arrested. But the, um, you know, the, and that's recent, you know, sure. but, the, um, but that transition from here's our plight to here's my expression to um, I live in a box and I can't get what's inside of me out big enough. And then it kind of becomes a little bit more perverse. And so the differences in one person's description of graffiti to another's can be very different. Like when you think graffiti, you'll have a picture in your head of something. When I think of graffiti, I'll have a picture in my head. They may be completely different and they may be similar or they may be completely different images that are of a completely different form. You know, graffiti has evolved over the years so that a lot, I think the younger kids who are thinking of graffiti are really thinking of like street art and they're thinking in terms of street art. And in LA, you know, people are getting permits and they're doing like these murals. And it used to be, you know. Oh, you can do that? Yeah, there's the whole LA mural conservancy. You oh, can, wow. You can submit your idea and, you know, That's come amazing. up with a bit of money. Way, way to go, LA. I had yeah. no idea. It's, it's a good idea. I, I, I wish some of the art were better. Well, everyone starts somewhere, right? And I wish it were a little bit more permanent because it seems like they're issuing these permits for like three months and then people spray paint over the same stuff. And it's right. it's kind of like another get up, you know, a, a little bit more organized get up, I guess. 
Well, that's interesting that you mentioned that because um, one of the things that I have seen start happening is, uh, I guess these, I don't know if I can call them graffiti or what, but people are starting to use projectors and lasers mm -hmm. to, you know, kind of pop up and, and do these nighttime image displays and, and messages and stuff in a, in a very animated way. And then, you know, poof, away it goes. Uh, but they're doing Public it art. But they're doing it illegally. Yeah. Yeah. Pop up public art. I mean, it's technically street art. If it's not, if it's not being done legally, then it's technically graffiti. Gotcha. But you know, graffiti would have to be a little bit more permanent. Like it has to cause damage to the surface that's being painted on. It has ah, to be unwanted. Okay. Gotcha, so the gotcha. the most strict definition of graffiti is that it is an act of vandalism. Now, when we think of graffiti as an art form, we think of you know these these more identifiable designs. I won't judge and say that you know slightly better or not because sometimes they're not, but that it's identifiable because the tag has been around long enough, it has been respected, it is out in the open space, it was performed illegally. Um, if it's done legally and it's out in the open space, it's still street art, it's not graffiti. If it's not in the street and it's not graffiti, but it's in the style of street art and it's in a gallery, is it still street art? Is it still graffiti? No, it's it's possibly spray can art or it's a wheat paste. So, so it's so kind of like a fake like thing. You, so like you were saying with the... Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no so the, um like you were saying with the permits, the mm -hmm. mural permits, that's that's public art, not so that's not graffiti. Gotcha. Yeah, that's street art, and it's um, public art. Yeah. You know, I think that when people like Risk and Nathan Oda, when he was using his coos tag, were hitting spots in Venice Beach in 1986, right. and they were gangbangers willing to kill them for painting on their turf. That's a whole different experience. Yeah. Than um, friends with you. <laughs> Right, you know, filing for a permit to paint the side of a building. Yeah, no, and I, and I have to say, when when you said graffiti, the the images that come to my mind were the the guys in the DC those covered sub, trains, the, the subway, the yeah. subway hoppers that would basically jump in, tag, jump out, and then I have to give it to DC, like they they had a massive, uh, least successful cleanup yeah. effort. Like nothing was ever on there for more than I would say like a week. Yeah, the the thing you know when when um, Bratton was in New York and they kind of revolutionized the crime thing. The first thing it went after is graffiti. Sure, it was the first step in getting a control on crime because people won't report crime if their area looks terrible. Um, That's fascinating. Yeah, the, the as a as a criminology uh, major in my in my college days, I, I see exactly what you're talking about. And it all, it worked in Boston and it, and it worked in LA. Um, and so now by having a, a public space that people have to bid over to get there, there's less um, just ugly stuff on the walls. But, I mean, it, it still happens. And, you know, whenever if we do a show that has graffiti artists at La Luz de Jesus Gallery, we know we're going to get tagged or stickered or something, and it's obnoxious. And so that makes us want to have those types of shows less. Right. But that their whole thing is like, oh, I want to be seen, and I want to be seen among my peers. It's a very selfish thing. You know, and a lot of times when you would see graffiti up until the last couple of years and until they got the mural thing going, up and going again, it wasn't like – Here's my plight. It was like, here's my show next week. Right. You know, in yeah. Culver City. Yeah. And I, that to me is a lot less valid than the early New York sub, subway car art. Um, I know that there was, you know, the Art in the Street show, which was very controversial here in Los Angeles at the, um, you know, the Museum of Contemporary Art that um, Jeffrey Deitch put together. And, you know, some people think that um, Eli Broad got Jeffrey Deitch um, appointed as the director of MOCA, knowing that he would go over budget on the exhibition <laughs> and that they would need his money as a bailout and that he could get his hands on a Mark Rothko that he wanted. Wow. Um, and Good. so it, Wow for forward thinking. At, at that end, it's a lot of manipulation. And the Sounds same Machiavellian. People, it is. Well, I mean, yeah. 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make fun of Eli Broad. You know, I I, I value my life, but yeah, um, yeah, of course. You know, I think that he's he's he spent a lot of money on some art that I find questionable. Um, and he's filled a lot of museums with it, and he's built a lot of extensions on those mu- museums, and he owns a construction company. <laughs> hey, uh, if this were the stock market, that wouldn't be okay. Insider trading. Yeah, yeah. I got you. You know, and um, there's a lot, and this, he's by no by no means the only guy, and he's the and not the most offensive. Uh, you know, he's supported people like Damian Hurst and Jeff Koons, and you can have an opinion one way or the other about those guys. But he's also launched a lot of other very important careers. And he helped push Sandy Sherman's prices up high. He helped establish uh, Matthew Barney, um, you know, after uh, Regan Projects really wrapped uh, their arms around Matthew Barney. And, I mean, that's definitely in that higher end of um, blue-chip contemporary art, which has, which is much more disconnected, I think, from the public than public art now. And so I think when kids see well-painted stuff, out in public every day it changes the way they feel about that environment the way that it was if it's if it's well done and even if it's not well done to an extent there may be this other thing which happens which is that they say i can do better than that and then they they find out how to do better than that sure so they go and they they take they pay a little bit more attention in a public school art class maybe they study a little bit after school they ask their art teacher hey you know is there some place where i can learn how to how to paint, you know, you're teaching me this, can I learn this, this other thing. Um, I mean, there's now public knitting, you know, where people like knit these extravagant things around public sculptures. Um, I, haven't, I haven't seen that. that it's pretty fa- amazing. Sounds yeah. fascinating. There's a couple of really talented artists. I saw artists. when um, I was in Baltimore for a long time, Micah, one of the art students knitted, um, I, I guess, cozies for these lampposts. Mm-hmm. And there was like 10 or, tw- tw- 10 or 12 of them. And yeah. that was kind of cool. But Some people are like knitting entirely different costumes that take like these colonial statues into a completely different era. Awesome. Yeah, like really, really good stuff. I would was, love to see that. Is yeah, that there, around here? Um, there's a couple people that work in LA. There's a French artist who's very famous who um, was contacted to do a, a piece at uh, Art Basel last year. Cool. Um, I think there's a Polish uh, artist who's very, very famous for her knitting. Um, and it's funny because she comes out of that world where there were werewolves and yeah. then there yeah. were freedom fighters and then yeah. there was Prolestaika. I mean, it's like, you know, all these different movements that all had their own type of graffiti, yeah. you know, and it was all vital and all political and, you know, and, and very kind of mind blowing. Yeah. And, you know, in LA, it's a, it's a bit safer now the way that it all goes down. But there's a lot of history in between there. And, you know, there's the story about the San Francisco scene and David Rose very much documented that in the Beautiful Dreamers documentary. That became a very big part of the um, art in the streets thing. And that caused a lot of friction because there were pretty famous people from L.A. and New York that were like wanted to be like headliners that were like, hey, I'm not going to be in the show if that clown's in this show type of stuff because there's egos and it's street artists. That's crazy. Well, well, I mean, I guess, but well, I guess it depends on if you respect the art or not. But right, yeah. but there's also you know the inclusion of people that were considered to be a little less valid, but they were tight with David Rose or were part of the whole crew or scene that launched um, Margaret Kilgallen, you know, who's uh, daily departed Margaret Kilgallen, um, and and her husband, and that whole San Francisco scene is a very different scene than LA. And so people in LA feel that that scene is less valid 
Um, people in Oakland feel like the San Francisco scene is less valid than Oakland is. Um, you know, and Oakland's a lot like a lot like the Bronx in a lot of ways, this is and a, a, a little bit like uh, like like um, Baltimore. Yeah, and a little bit like Philly. Yeah, I can see that. I I just find this fascinating that there's this in, intense graffiti war going on that I had no idea. All kinds of rivalries. Yeah, and like the old New York guys really felt like, you know, why am I not in this show? Like, how dare? they not put me in the show type of thing. And there were some LA artists like Becca, who <laughs> is one of the really early female graffiti artists, um, yeah. came and did her own installation in the bathroom because she wasn't invited to be in the show. So she snuck in and just put something up in the ladies' bathroom. And I was like, how, you know, that, that's good. That's, yeah, that's gumption. That's, that's the way to do it. But here's another thing that oftentimes, and it doesn't matter if you're a, someone who appreciates fine art photography or if you're somebody who is a fan of street art. It really depends on what your socioeconomic status is comparative to the areas and where you're seeing the art. Because if you walk into, you know, Fifth and Wall in, in downtown Los Angeles at... That's uh, in the arts district, right? Uh, it's a little bit outside. Gotcha. It's, it's like, um, what would you call it? You call it Skid Row. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, if you're down there and you're at 2 o'clock at night and you got your camera out and you're taking pictures of people, they may have a problem with that. I would imagine. You know? And there's some people that live in areas that are heavily graffitied and, and they don't love it. You know, they're not fans of it. And how uh, audacious is it that there are these very wealthy people that are paying for these graffiti artists who they see as vandals to set up shop inside a respected museum and wouldn't it have been great if when all these very wealthy patrons have their Jaguars and their Mercedes, you know, AMGs and their M class BMWs and their S class Audis all parked in that lot and come out and have them completely bombed <laughs> by, you know, a graffiti crew. That'd be pretty awesome. But would you all, would they be doing those guys a favor? I mean, we, can you see that crowd then like selling the doors off their cars and I, selling the trunks off of their cars? I could certainly see that. So it's sort of like, it's a really interesting way of looking at how you perceive a specific thing. Like, is it still art if someone graffitis up your car? You know, if you right. feel differently about that than you feel about it in someone else's neighborhood, is is there a change to the validity or is it only your personal experience with it? And if you are, can you be so objective if you are the subject? Right. And I think I think a lot of that, is influenced by, and you touched on this earlier, whether or not permission is given. Mm -hmm. And whether or not it's considered aesthetically pleasing. Sure, but then you're then you're getting into the whole what is what is art versus right. You're getting you know, into the taste thing. Yeah, yeah. Now the um, and that I think is what is helpful. What is good about street art? What is good, and how this connects back to comic books is you can look at the work of Mark Bode, and it was hugely influential on the 80s graffiti artists. His work with the, um, with the paint pens and how yeah. it would spread, it spread just like acrylic paint from a spray can. Yeah, the, uh, the ballooning and... Uh, and uh, became thick, a huge thick, thing. Thick, bold lines, right? Yep, those, yeah, those balloon lettering, mm -hmm. very much out of Mark Bode's handbook. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Von Bode, sorry, Mark is his son, and who, who continues... Uh, how dare you, you're, you're discredited. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the... The impact of that work and all the kind of underground comic guys, including like, you know, the um, whether it's the the Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers or whether it's like, um, you know, S. Clay Wilson or Robert Crumb doing their stuff at Zap and Robert Williams, of course, who was doing like that amazing 
chrome looking paint using regular oil paint. Wow. You know, and I've seen a lot of Robert Williams paintings up close and I've I've had the very good fortune of being able to present him with an award. I know him and his wife very you know, very well. Awesome. And um there's very few people as intelligent who speak about contemporary art as is Robert Williams. He's amazing. Huh. Um he was also hugely influential on the nineteen nineties, early two thousands graffiti artists who saw his work, saw what was considered lowbrow, was now starting to transition into pop surrealism. Both terms that Robert coined, by the way. Wow. He also coined a term called, um, oh, what is it? It's um, conceptual realism, which I love. I love that term. And they kind of aped his style, but in a very street way, in a very watered down way. Like, it's kind of like, you know, you, you tell a story, a sentence at the, the front of the classroom, and they tell the person next to them. And by the telephone. time you get to the yeah. end, yeah, the end of the telephone line, it's a completely different message. That's sort of that interpretation of that amazing innovative work has become its own thing so when kids see that now they have a basis of comparison they know that where their skill level is what that skill level is and whether or not they want to achieve to be as good as that or better than that or completely do something on their own and that's good for art school which there's this idea and there may be some truth to it that art schools have become diploma mills that people are paying a lot of money to get a degree that isn't really that valuable. And, I mean, that that speaks to civic responsibility of the school, and if they're accepting too many students, considering the amount of job placement, then, I mean, that's an issue for uh, your your student loan officers, I guess, and, and that becomes a federal Well, I think issue. it also depends on the field that you're aiming to go into. Uh, a lot of the, I, I have a lot of friends in art school, and half of them, I would say, are actually aiming for graphic design. Yeah. And that that's fine, but then yeah, there are legitimate like no, I'm going to be a painter, and it's like, I hope, I hope, man. Yeah, and, and I mean, there's there's a whole trajectory to that too. I mean, you have to go to the right school. Really, you have to get the right master's degree. I mean, you can kind of go any place, sure. and you can learn your craft, and then you got to get the right master's. And then if you're going to go into art history to be an academic, you have to get the right doctorate. Sure. You know, it's like architecture. Yeah. You know. Um, you know, my wife went to, uh, she has her MARC degree from SciArc, which is the greatest architectural school in the world. And it's oh, in awesome. Los Angeles. And you got like the original board of directors included Zumtor, who's this great Swiss architect who's helping to design the new LACMA building. Awesome. Yeah. And, but they teach theoretical architecture. I mean, a lot of the stuff when I go to the grad shows there are buildings that cannot be built. Sure. Just little models and stuff. And they're fiction. I mean, I understand the great idea of thinking outside the box, but I've always felt that... Are they essentially just waiting for materials to catch up with them? Or is it just, it's never going to happen? They just want to get a job with the professor who runs the firm of, you know, theoretical architecture. But I I felt that it's irresponsible to teach architecture without teaching engineering. Yeah, I would imagine the two would go hand in hand. And they don't always. You but could, you could get around that if you were an architect who worked with a good engineer, couldn't yeah, you? Yeah. yeah, and that's what a lot of them do. Gotcha. But it seems like a, a weird disconnect. You know, it's like to me, it's like, hey, your chocolate's in my peanut butter. Hey, your right. peanut butter's in my chocolate. Yeah, you know? I'm often uh, to draw a very weak comparison. I'm often on a film set where the director has zero idea mm-hmm. of what the people on the crew do, and I find that it blows my mind because you, you need to. You need to know exactly what you're asking people to do so that you can all come together and, and So work. he whispers into the first AD's ear and then the yeah. TP does what he wants to do. Well, yeah, sure. 
Yeah. <laughs> I've been on those sets too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, you know, I guess at the end of the day and where it becomes a positive thing is that I think graffiti is causing a renewed interest in illustration skills. And I imagine that a lot of people who would endeavor to paint large, somewhat cartoony murals um, would practice and be influenced by sequential art, by comic books, by laying out a story. And the, the really interesting graffiti is kind of sequential. It's, it's kind of a somewhat abstracted sequential piece. And I mean, to me, that stuff is always fun to see and you is don't it, see enough of it. How, how is it sequential? Is it because like they'll do a piece over on one block and then if you go to another block, it's a different piece, but it's related? Or is it like they do a whole mural? It could be either of those things. It could, I, I mean, that would be great if there was somebody who was like slightly moving. Like if, if you were to, to line oh, up yeah. the right eye I, view on 20 blocks. I thought, uh, I thought Basquiat did stuff like that, right? No? Oh, he would put stuff all over the place. Um, but I thought if you went in a certain way, it was like this, like Stations of the Cross, like this, then this, then this. And I don't know. Possibly. I, don't but, know. I, I could be wrong. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm unfamiliar. Basquiat, of course, was not a homeless kid. He was an upper middle class kid from Pennsylvania. Right. right. But um, was a legitimate street artist, as was, you know, um, one of the most famous of all is probably Keith Haring. I mean, there's a huge Keith Haring um, mural at Art Center. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, um, and, and those guys were kind of considered part of the epitome of the 1980s art world. And what does that coincide with? <laughs> the rise of hip hop. Yeah, there you go. You know, so it, it kind of brings it all full circle. And I, and, and I love that idea. And then there was, for a while, you know, you look at some of Sam Keith's stuff, you know, after his run on Sandman and as he's going into Max, and then some of the other guys that they picked up to be doing independent comics at that time. Had it's, a very it's fast. Style. I'm sorry. I, I just want to get this in real quick. It's fascinating that you said that because I did not see that connection uh, for Sam Keith until you just outlined it for me. But yes, the Max is totally graffiti, totally graffiti. driven, and, and very I, much Von Baudet. Yeah, and yeah. and beautiful. Yeah, and I never saw that connection until just now. Fantastic job. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah, and Jay Lee, you know, and like there's there's a bunch of them that they have different aspects of what they do, and there's a certain acrylic spray. Thing that they bring to it but of course teenage mutant ninja turtles you sure. know the um right. the eastman laird stuff the, is the very much looks like graffiti stuff that's, yeah, yeah. that's done sequentially and as an underground comic and growing up in massachusetts and seeing those guys at conventions and talking to them and them having having them be like the other kind of local famous guys um they were hugely influential on us i oh, mean yeah. they made us all want to do comics because they proved that it could be done and you know Kevin especially, I think um, Peter was a little bit more um, reclusive, but um, but very nice. Um, Kevin was kind of like really into all the stuff that you'd be into. I mean, he bought Heavy Metal magazine at a certain point, which is like, what street credit could you get beyond that? <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, by having the Tundra Press and putting out the stuff for Steve Bissett, putting out this, you know, the um, you know, my first guest. You know, you talk about. Um, you know, Brendan McCarthy and, oh, the, yeah. and them doing Skin, which was completely a graffiti comic. I, I never saw it, but it sounded fascinating. Oh, it's just amazing stuff. And the the idea of that, and, you know, Brendan, of course, is a, a, a very smart art school guy and was on the cutting edge of the punk rock movement. And he was really, he's a forward-thinking dude. I mean, he's always thinking about the next format, not yeah, just like the on next On your show, project. I think he mentioned that CG, he was like, I, I was going to people saying uh, CG was going to be the next big thing, and people yeah. were blowing him off, and he was like, all right. He was then, behind Reboot. Yeah, he did Reboot. Yeah. And then, yeah. Which I completely 
been oblivious to. And we, yeah. we licensed it at a certain point in the company uh-huh. I was at. But the, you know, with these guys, you know, at the helm, I mean, anywhere you go is good. You know, that they're going to drive you in the right direction. And I think that that's a good thing about graffiti now, that whether or not you like seeing it, whether or not you think it's overrated, whether or not you argue about whether or not, um, you know, people like Retina are, are their work is valued at a certain price range, that um, it's good for people to see. And I think, you know, with Retina, he's invented his own language. And I think that there's an art form to that. I think that it's aesthetically pleasing to look at and that it may be... He may be one of the guys that. Becomes... Oh, is that the deal? Is his stuff like hieroglyphics? Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Or I guess they're pictograms, but it, right. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's very much a, a, a you know like a language of his own creation. Interesting. He's a very polarizing character. You know, um, you can have very different interactions with him. I've I've had some some pretty pleasant interactions with him, and you, you, there's legends about the volatility, but um, at the end of the day, he works with kids for free. Cool. You know, uh, so I think you know that everybody's multifaceted. And in street art, you're going to have dynamic personalities are going to be the ones that rise to the surface. And I think that his fame is going to encourage a new look at what graffiti can be, what it can be termed, and how design comes back onto the street as opposed to stealing from the street. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would also say that um, I think what I noticed graffiti doing was exposing art to people that would ha- in in no other way have access to it mm. they wouldn't they like the kids that i was running around with weren't interested in museums they weren't interested in libraries they weren't interested in whatever but you see graffiti and you're like oh this this is this is amazing it makes me feel something it makes me want to create draw paint whatever and so yeah i see what you're saying we always hope that graffiti can be the gateway drug to the metropolitan museum and I think that's where we'll end this week's this week's podcast. Sounds so, great. So again, I want to thank Mason Booker for, for joining me. He's our in-house producer and audio engineer, just all-around great guy. And I had a great conversation with him about some of the screenwriting, and I, I encourage you all to look him up. Oh, you have a website? You. Thank you. Uh, no, I don't. Oh, we'll have to work on that. Uh, i got to get something going on. But yeah, <laughs> thanks. No, I'm a huge fan of the show, and thank you so much for letting me come on. Absolutely. Again, this has been Pod Sequentialism. I'm Matt Kennedy, and we'll talk to you next time. Melt You, the school at Meltdown where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now.